how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Letters of John, Part 2. Well, now, to finish our studies of the first letter of John, we've got to tackle a rather difficult issue. It's the question of sin in believers. And there are certain statements makes which appear to cancel each other out. Uh, in some statements, he assumes that believers will sin. In other states, statements, he says they cannot sin. And this has puzzled many people. For example, if I read uh, chapter 3, verse 9, in the authorized version, this is what it says. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Well, now, that's really quite a, a challenge, that you, if you're born of God, cannot sin. Is that true? Then that means for years you haven't sinned, some of you. Would you dare to claim that? Well, now, what do we make of that statement? Taken by itself, it seems quite categorical. If you're born of God, you cannot sin, full stop. And yet in that first chapter, he says, writing to Christians, if any sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So how can he say we cannot sin, and yet when we do, this is what you should do about it? It just doesn't tie up somehow. Well, let's tackle this, this verse first. There are one or two other verses we're going to have to look at, but this is the one that really uh, sticks in people's throats uh, when they read it. Uh, there are major problems with it and minor problems with it. The, the major problem is, is this true? It doesn't just say they don't sin. That's the first statement in the verse, they don't sin. It then goes on to say they can't sin because the seed, literally the word there is spermatos, sperm, because the sperm of God remains in the Christian and they can't do it. Well now, uh, forgive the alliteration. Somebody said, uh, somebody said alliteration is for fools, poets and Plymouth brethren. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, I just was playing around with words there. You can forget that. Take the simple thing. I wonder, let's have a vote on it as I make each statement. Vote on whether you really think that's true. That Christians do sin. You all believe that. That it's indubitable. Absolutely certain. Or it's inevitable. Christians will sin. How many of you think that's true? that it's incompatible with our calling, that Christians should not sin. How many believe that? Right. That it's not just incompatible, it's intolerable. Christians must not sin. How many would go as far as that? That we must not. <laughs> We're getting a little shaky. <laughs> All right, let's take the next, that sin inexcusable in the Christian, we need not sin. How many of you would agree with that? A little firmer on that one. That the concept of sin is inapplicable to Christians. We don't sin. How many of you agree with that? Well, let's 
take a vote on the less, that it's inconceivable. We cannot sin. Now, you see, no one's voted for the last two, yet those are apparently what the verse says. Now, isn't that interesting? So you don't agree with the Word of God. <laughs> okay, well, we're laughing at it, but we've got to tackle it. You can't just ignore this verse. It says we don't sin because we can't sin. And yet none of you voted for that. You had a little uncertainty up here, but you were very certain that you didn't agree with that, and yet that's the statement. Well, we've got to tease it out a bit. First we notice that there are certain conditions attached. Why does he say we don't sin or can't sin? Why? That's the important thing. He says, first, because we are born of God. That's the first thing, that we're born of God. The second thing is that, therefore, his seed remains in us. His sperm, which is a very potent uh, metaphor, remains in us. But is that the only condition? Are those the only two things? Well, once you put the verse back in context, then you begin to see there's a third condition, that it's not a categorical statement, but it is a conditional statement. A categorical statement says this is true all the time, everywhere it's got to be. A conditional statement says this is true if... Do you follow me? And if your eye goes a little up the page, it says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And suddenly that begins to put a different complexion on it. You're beginning to get a different feel. And I also need to give you a little bit about Greek here. If you don't know Greek, you can't check me out. If you do, you can, but you must accept my word for it. The verbs here are in a special Greek tense called the continuous present tense. And the present tense in Greek doesn't just mean something you do now, but something that you continue doing. So that Jesus didn't say, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it'll be opened. He said, keep on asking and you will receive, keep on seeking and you will find, keep on knocking and the door will open to you. And even that famous verse, John 3.16, is totally misunderstood because that also is in the present continuous tense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever goes on believing in him will never perish, but go on having eternal life. Has that altered that verse a bit for you? It should have done. It's not those who believe once who have eternal life, it's those who go on believing. They go on having life. And here it says, no one who goes on living in Christ will go on sinning. The word lives here is the same as the word abides. I am the true vine. Abide in me means stay in me, go on living in me. And this statement that we began with, which we had difficulty with voting for, is conditioned by the context that you go on living in Christ. And the statement then becomes true, that whoever goes on living in Christ doesn't go on sinning and can't go on sinning. So if you're not living on in Christ, that this doesn't apply. You're beginning to get the feel of it. And it is true that if every day you live in Christ, you will not go on sinning. 
there will not be those habitual things that go on and on and on. They'll be broken. See? And you'll be making progress. And Paul is here talking about how to find out who are not true Christians. People who are not going on living on Christ will not show any progress spiritually. They will not be moving into this promise because this promise... Let me now read one or two verses. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And therefore no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And that is why the verse we started with is translated rightly in the New International Version. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. He cannot go on sinning. Because if you're living in Christ, you will make progress. You will have victory. It's your relationship with him that conditions this promise. Now, I hope that's cleared it up because, I mean, as it stands, if you quote it right out of context, you couldn't even agree with it. And here you were voting against God's word this morning. I quoted a verse to you and none of you would agree with it. A Christian congregation. Do you see what I mean? Now, that just illustrates how dangerous it is to take one verse out of its context and build a doctrine on it. We really must put it all in context because this whole letter assumes that Christians will fall into sin, but not that they will go on doing it. Letter to the Hebrews says, if after you've received forgiveness you deliberately go on sinning, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. It's not saying Christians will never sin, but they have a way of dealing with it. And living in Christ, they will want to deal with it. One of the proofs that you're a Christian is that when you do sin, you hate it, right? You don't love it, and you want to be rid of it. And if you go on abiding in Christ, then that is the way to be rid of it. Those who go on living in Christ cannot go on sinning. It's just incompatible. Well, I hope that has helped you. But having said that, there is something else in chapter 5 about sin in Christians which is very serious. In chapter 5 he says, when we see a brother sinning, we should do everything we can to help him and convert him from his evil ways. And you've saved a brother. And then he says this, but there is a sin unto death and there is no point in praying for a brother who sinned unto death. Now that's serious. All the way through scripture there is a point of no return that backsliders can reach. There is a sin unto death and we need to take these warnings very seriously. They're most prominent in the letter to the Hebrews. There comes a point where repentance is impossible. And John says a brother can so sin that it's no use praying for him anymore. That means, of course, that he's not living in Christ, that he's lost his link with the true vine, that he's no longer abiding. So that you've got a beautiful balance only by putting all that John says about sin in believers together. But if you start taking any one thing he says by itself, for example, if you just took that verse, 
there is a sin unto death, and there's no point in praying for a brother who's reached that point in his backsliding. Dear me, if that's all you ever preached, you'd finish up with a congregation who would go home in mortal fear that they'd committed the unforgivable sin. But likewise, at the opposite extreme, if you just say, if any man sin, we have an advocate, all you've got to do is confess your sins and get it forgiven, then that would say, oh, that's fine, I can go on sinning till the day I die, and all I need to do is ask for forgiveness, and I can stay right. No. Right in between those two extremes is this verse that says, whoever lives in Christ doesn't go on sinning. You see? So it's, it's a balance. Take everything he says about sin and believers together and you'll have a balanced attitude, and you'll not become neurotic on the one hand or complacent on the other. There'll be a healthy fear of the Lord that will keep you in Christ. Well, I hope that's helped a little. Um, can't claim to have answered it all for you, and I'm sure you've still got some questions. But um, nevertheless, sin in believers is serious. Well, if God is light, then we're to walk in the light. If God is love, we're to walk in love. And if God is life, we're to live in him. We'll finish with uh, the first letter of John because I want to go on to the second and third letter of John, but I'm going to start in a very unusual way. I'm going to start by telling you the difference between men and women, <laughs> which God made. When God made us in his image, he made us male and female. And he made us, therefore, complementary to one another. And it's astonishing how the strengths of maleness correspond to the weaknesses of femaleness, and the strengths of femaleness correspond to the weaknesses of maleness, and how much we need each other. Now, this funny diagram I've put up for this reason. When I talk about the differences between men and women, I'm talking about the difference between the average man represented by that circle, and the average woman. But since maleness is on a spectrum, and all males are not average, and all females are not average but on a spectrum, there is an overlap between the two. So that any statement I make, I'm quite sure you can find exceptions. For example, if I say that men are taller and women are shorter, that is true, isn't it? And yet I could find women here that are taller than I am. But the average male is taller than the average female. Do, do you follow me? So don't come and say, well, you're wrong in that, because I know an exception to that, you see. There are effeminate men, and there are masculine women. What the humanist is wrong to assume is that actually this is one spectrum, a kind of male end and a female end, and sort of mixture in the middle, as if we are all one. We're not. We're male and female, but the two spectrums overlap. There are also extremes. There's macho men and bimbo women, <laughs> the, you know, sort of Sy Sylvester Stallone way out there and Marilyn Monroe out here or whoever. But you've got these spectrums, and you've got this overlap in the middle. And I'm afraid it's in the overlap that many men are wanting to become women. And 25,000 men in this country are now women. They can get it free on the National Health Service. Extraordinary confusion coming in. And many women want to be like men, and there's a strong feminist pressure at that end. 
God made the differences, and we need to understand the differences to understand the second and third letter of John, would you believe it? Because second John is the only letter in the New Testament addressed to a woman, and then third John is an almost identical letter addressed to a man, and they say opposite things, and yet they have the same subject. And it's because one is addressed to a woman, one is addressed to a man, that they are actually quite different. So let's look at some of the differences. Men are angular to look at. Women are curved. Obvious, isn't it? But I could find some curved men even here, <laughs> and maybe some angular women. Men have an analytical brain, whereas women are more intuitive. It's quite irritating when my wife comes to the same conclusion as myself, but she comes six weeks earlier. <laughs> it's quite irritating. But intuition, that other side of the brain, is much stronger in most women, whereas men like to sit down and do a time and motion study on it and think it through. Uh, men can think in more abstract terms, in terms of ideas. Women will think in more concrete terms of a real situation. Men um, think of general things, women think of particular things. They want a particular example. Men, and here we come to the two biggest, or one of two of the biggest differences, men are goal-oriented. They have to live for a goal ahead. They live for the future. They, they are constantly working towards something, whereas women there are exceptions, but women are need-oriented. A man is fulfilled if he's got a goal to aim for. A woman is fulfilled if she's got a need to meet. And the biggest difference, clearly, uh, is that men, therefore, are more interested in things than women in people. And a bunch of men to getting together will talk about motorbikes and cars and all sorts of things, and their wives will get together and talk about their husbands. <laughs> you see? and how much we need each other. I'll mention one other, other difference, which isn't strictly relevant, but is important to know, and that is that a man can live in separate compartments in his life. He can fragment himself. He can separate his thoughts from his feelings, whereas a woman thinks as a whole person. That's why a man can be in love with more than one woman at once, but a woman can only be in love with one man at once. That's part of our temptation that men have to face, that women need to understand. A wife finds the husband's gone off with a woman at the office, she says, you don't love me anymore. He says, yes, I do. And that is true. But she can't understand that. That doesn't excuse anything in men. It's just because he can live in separate compartments. And this means that men have the responsibility of discipline because they can separate their feelings from their thoughts and are able to be more objective about a situation that needs confronting and punishing. You with me? I happen to believe in capital punishment. And people say, could you press the button or could you pull the lever? I say, yes, I think I could, but I would never ask my wife to. See? So that's one of the reasons why men are given responsibility of discipline in the home, in the church. Well, all this is part of the Men for God conferences we run. Uh, but it's because of this difference that men are more concerned with truth and women are more concerned with love, agape love. And the danger of men is to have too much emphasis on truth and too little on love. 
And the danger of women is to have too little emphasis on truth and too much on love. Do you follow me? And John's second and third epistles perfectly fit this pattern. So now we can begin to look at them. But that's just the general background. And so we have 2 and 3 John. And the main theme in both little letters, and they're just on one sheet of paper, A4, A4 is almost exactly what one sheet of papyrus was, uh, that's uh, that size. And uh, they're both concerned about the subject of hospitality. Now, hospitality was very important in the early church because Christians, by and large, weren't welcome anywhere else. And in fact, they had to look after each other, and Christians traveling around. And also, there were traveling ministries. And a church needs both local ministry and traveling ministry. Very important to have both. Some churches are locked into their own local ministry and don't listen to enough other ministries. That's dangerous. Others live on visiting preachers all the time and don't have enough of their own. But it seems in the New Testament there were local ministries, pastors and teachers, and there were traveling ministries, prophets, evangelists, and so on. And one of the earliest Christian writings, called the Didache, warns you that if a prophet stays more than three days with you, he's a false prophet. Interesting little sidelight, because prophets get too heavy if they're permanent. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? If you've got a resident prophet, you're in trouble. Boy, they come on heavy week after week, you know, thus saith the Lord, <laughs> you know. And it's so heavy, you get almost blasé about it after a bit. It's dangerous. Prophecies, prophets need to travel, and evangelists need to travel, pastors and teachers need to stay put. That's why we had to choose. You can't be a pastor of a church and a traveling preacher. It's unfair on the church. I've seen many churches wrecked because they never know when the man will be there or not, you know. So we need both traveling and settled ministries, and particularly hospitality for traveling ministries. You know, invariably I'm asked, do you want to stay in a hotel or with a family? I say, always with a family, provided it's the right kind. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they say, well, what do you mean? I said, I can tell you in one word of, th of four letters. And that's all I ask. Just find me a home with one word of four letters. I wonder what you think it is. R E A L. I just said, put me with a family of real people. <laughs> I don't ask for anything else, just real people, not pretend people. You know, we're trying to be something for the visiting speaker or trying to expect me to be something other than myself. Just put me with a family of real people. And of course, that's, that happened a great deal in the early church. Now here he writes two letters where the hospitality had gone wrong. And the first letter is to a lady and the second is to a man. And the lady was throwing the door open too wide and the man was keeping it too tight shut. Now that is so typical that we can all learn from both these and we can equally be critical of ourselves in the light of it. You see, the lady, the danger was she had too much love and not enough truth. And she was welcoming people she ought not to have welcomed. She was giving hospitality. Her attitude was she was too soft-hearted. 
and her door was opened wide to anybody who wanted to stay, and she was welcoming the wrong people and therefore being used to introduce bad teaching to a church. And John, this grandfatherly figure, had to rebuke her mildly that you're neglecting the truth and you're being used to introduce wrong belief. Now this is why, let me say this in real love, and I, I, I mean this, I'm worried about wives who get really interested in ministries and truths and so on without their husbands checking that. I've seen a lot of it. And wives, check out the books you're reading, the people you're listening to with your husband. Talk it over with him and let him be your head to help your heart, not to welcome things. I'm afraid it is true that many heresies have got into the church through women and through wives who are not working with their husbands and bad teaching gets in. The woman's heart goes with the teaching, but she needs a bit of head control over it. I just throw that out. Uh, you notice, remember that in Timothy, these bad teachers were getting hold of widows and weak-willed women, women who didn't have a man to help to protect them from uh, being misled. And uh, of course, that's why Paul mentions in Timothy again the matter of women teaching, and he points out that Eve was deceived. I think I also ought to add that Eve was fooled in the presence of Adam, and he kept his mouth shut. And that makes me ashamed of my gender. You know, Genesis 3 says Adam was present while Satan argued with Eve, and he never opened his mouth. And I watch on TV so often when a couple is interviewed after a disaster or a bereavement or something, and who does the talking? And the man sits there like a mugwump. He ought to be protecting his wife, and he ought to be doing the talking. But he lets the wife take it all from the interviewer. Now, you see, I'm speaking against men now because uh, we've got to be fair in this. But you see, a woman on her own, she's a lady who had meetings in her home, and probably her husband said, it's all right, I'll go into the other room while you have your meeting. That's the kind of thing that happens. Very few husbands, alas, are bold enough to argue with their wives. Anything for domestic peace, you know what I mean? Oh, I don't mind you going to church. He probably does mind very much, but he won't say so. So she had this church in her home, and she was welcoming anybody who came and said, I'm a Christian teacher, I'm a Bible teacher. And she would say, come in, here's a bed for you, and you must speak at my group tonight. And John just had to put a foot on the brake pedal and say, now, come on, truth and love. And you must find out, is this man bringing the truth before you give him an entrance to your house? But then the opposite danger is in the third letter. And he's now writing to a man. And this man is too jealous for his church, for his group of people. He's not having any other teacher come in here, you know. And he's much too tight. And uh, that's the opposite extreme. The danger here is that he's got so much emphasis on truth that he's forgotten love, and he thinks he's got everything 100% right doctrinally and nobody else has. And so he shuts the door. And he's, his attitude is too hard-hearted, and his door is shut too tight. And right people, good teachers, are being refused entrance who could bring some real help to the fellowship. And that is a temptation of men. I speak as a man, and it's very easy for us to do this.
and put so much emphasis on truth that we forget love. That's why I appreciated that prayer this morning so much, that we must confront error in the church, but do it in love. It's a very delicate balance to get, and it's easier for women to get too much love and too little truth than for men to get too much truth and too little love. How much we need each other and how much God made us for each other. It doesn't mean that we've, we can only, or that we've all got to be married and can only find this partnership in marriage. Jesus is a perfect example of a single man and yet who had perfect relationships with women, you see, and appreciated them and ministered to them and allowed them to minister to him. But he still kept very clear the distinction of the roles and responsibilities of men and women. So I hope that this distinction helps you to feel positive about the difference. And it's so important to be positive. God made the variety in the world by making differences. He separated darkness from light. He separated the waters below from the waters above. He separated dry land from the sea and he separated male from female, both equally in the image of God and both equal in dignity, depravity and destiny. Totally equal but different and therefore needing different words from God and different guidance and dear John gave that guidance. We need both. We need love and truth in the woman and we need truth and love in the man. <laughs> and then we've got it together. When we analyse these two little uh, letters, they're so short, but uh, clearly they were written at the same time. They must have been. And uh, they follow exactly the same pattern. The lady, we don't know her name, it might have been Curia, which is Greek for lady, but it may have been a title of some prominent lady. We just don't know her. And uh, the children could be the spiritual children who meet in her home. We don't know. But uh, you see how the same outline is followed and yet the emphasis is totally different. That interesting? They're almost identical letters and yet as you read them through, they have a different message for the man and the lady. Well, there's an outline that you can follow through. The man's name we do know and, uh, well, no names, no pack drill, but he was guilty of uh, letting or being too tight. He was himself, I'm afraid his name was Diotrephes, he was talkative, overbearing and headstrong and I'm afraid he was power hungry. He was jealous for his little fellowship. He didn't want other teachers coming in and distracting attention from his leadership. And he was told to welcome Demetrius, a man who was known to them and who was well spoken of and had been turned out by Diotrephes. And John says, welcome him. He's a good teacher. Don't shut the door in his face. Well, those are the letters of John. Let me finish by telling you two stories about John in his old age, which we know from church records. And they, they are most revealing about John's balance of truth and love in himself, because he was a model of getting it together. He stood firmly for the truth. He wouldn't compromise on truth. You know that from his first letter. If anybody cast doubts about who Christ was, he came down like that. But at the same time, he was the most loving old man. He was called a beloved disciple and Jesus loved him 
and the result is he was a man full of love. Here are the two stories. When he was very, very old, he used to be carried into church every day. They had a chair with poles through it, and they would carry the aged apostle into church, and they would ask him to speak. And he would get up, well, he wouldn't get up, he'd sit in the chair at the front, and he'd say, little children, love one another. And then they would take him back to the pew, and the next Sunday they'd carry him into church, and they would say to him, have you got a word for us today? Yes, he said, I've got a word for you today. And they'd carry the chair to the front, and he'd say, little children, love one another and they would take him away again. Then the next Sunday they'd bring him in, have you got a word for us this morning? Yes, I've got a word for you this morning. And they'd take him to the front, he said, little children love one another. <laughs> they began to think he was getting senile a bit, you know. It was always the same word. And they said, Master, finally, they're weary of it. You know, you do get weary of some people, don't you, when they say the same thing? There was a dear old man in one prayer meeting up in the north of England. Every Sunday morning he prayed, Lord, sweep the cobwebs from my heart. Lord, sweep the cobwebs from my heart. Every Sunday morning, finally, a young man shouted out, Lord, kill that spider, please. <laughs> well, you, you, can, you, can get, you can get tired of the same thing from the same old people. I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about in open worship. Well, little children love one another. They finally went to the old man and said, Master, interesting title they gave him, Master, why do you always say this? He said, because it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. Isn't that beautiful? But they also used to carry him to the swimming pool, to the Roman baths, and give him a bath regularly. <laughs> I think that's lovely. And once they lowered him into the water, and at the other end of the pool, he saw a man called Serinthus, who was the leading false teacher going around the churches. And he said, take me out, take me out. I won't be in the same water as that man. And they had to lift him up and take him home unwashed that day. The man was the most loving man, but truth was all important too. See, that's John the Apostle. Remarkable, really, because when Jesus met him, he was one of the most bad-tempered men around. And Jesus called him Boanerges. Not a very nice word, not a very nice name. It means sons of thunder. And James and John were a couple of bad-tempered old sons. And Jesus said, I'm going to call you sons of Boanerges, sons of thunder. And he was a bigot, too. When the Samaritans spat on them as they walked through Samaria, he said, I'm going to call fire down from heaven if you give me permission, Jesus, and we'll burn the lot up. That's John. What a change. He was vindictive and scheming. He got that from his mother. His mother came to Jesus and said, when you come into your kingdom, I want my two sons to have the two chop jobs, please. And on another occasion, they also were talking the same way, and the other disciples got jealous because they were trying to steal a march and getting top jobs in the kingdom. And yet here in his old age is this man, the perfect combination of love and truth. How Jesus changes a person. And that's why he was able to write, whoever lives in Jesus can't go on sinning. They've got to change, and they'll become like Jesus himself. Well, those are the three letters of John.
and we've got two more studies, and then we've covered the whole New Testament. We're going to look at the little letter of Jude, and then we're going to take a second look at the book of Revelation. I wasn't satisfied with the last video I did. I felt there was more to say, and that I wanted to give you my own approach to that book, because uh, the last time I really talked about everybody else's approach to it, and I want to share mine with you. So we'll finish that study there, and the next study will be on the letter of Jude. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.